offering my most loving pranams at Bhagwan's Lotus Feet. Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage. This is Prem, your friend from Team Radio Sai, coming to you live from our studios at Prashantinilayam. This is a series where we go through the most beautiful and profound work of Sanatan Dharma, the Bhagavad Gita. Swami has given us this beautiful opportunity to do this together where we go through each verse of the Bhagavad Gita, try to understand the meaning of it and also dwell upon what it is trying to teach us. As Swami would say, the mere reading of the Bhagavad Gita or recitation of the Bhagavad Gita or to know it by heart is not what Gita is meant for. All of Vedanta and all of Bhagavad Gita, the essence of it, is meant to be practiced. And I think that is what is going to be the endeavor in whatever we do, whatever we take up as part of our study. And this time it is the Bhagavad Gita. And we begin with a prayer to Swami that we don't go through these scriptures, not just superficially, but with the prayer and with the earnest effort that these should become a part of our understanding and our way of life. This is the fourth episode of the series and the third episode where we are going through the shlokas as such. The last week around we had completed till the 11th shloka and uh, that's where we stopped and it was a pretty story-based episode if I could say that because the episode where Duryodhana is pointing out to the various warriors on the side of the Kauravas and I think I took the time out to explain about some of the characters who are mentioned and the reason why I did that was Sage Vyasa has decided that these names have to be mentioned as part of the Bhagavad Gita and I thought it is good for us to look at the background of these great heroes and warriors whose names were mentioned and I think that's what we had gone through. And we concluded with three verses that show the state of mind of Duryodhana, the primary aggressor if we could say that because he is the main cause for this entire war. Had he agreed for the truce, had he first of all not been an adharmic person, the war wouldn't have come by at all. Or even if he had agreed for the truce which the Pandavas were ready to offer him, this wouldn't have happened. So he is the main person who is instrumental in this Mahabharata war coming across. We came across these three verses where Duryodhana tries to show that he is very, very confident because the numbers are on his side. He's got a larger army, he's got greater warriors on his side and comparatively, the Pandava forces are less experienced and he is trying to exude that confidence. But in spite of all this, the physical numbers being on his side, there is a sense of nervousness which is betraying him. It is coming out even though he is trying to conceal it. And uh, Sage Vyasa brings it apart in a couple of verses very beautifully where he points out to his army and he says, these are all warriors who have come here to die for me. And he almost makes it a proclamation instead of saying that they've come here prepared to die for me. He says they've come here to die for me. And it's almost prophetic because all of them, the, most of the great warriors would perish in that war trying to fight for uh, Duryodhana. And then we came across that verse where Sage Vyasa very beautifully uses two words, paryaptam and aparyaptam, which have meanings that are ambiguous. It could mean that Duryodhana is saying that my army is sufficient. It could also mean that Duryodhana is saying that my army is insufficient. So in a verse he, where Duryodhana is proclaiming his confidence, Sage Vyasa uses such words which suggest that hidden within that confidence is a certain sense of nervousness. And I think we spoke about how that nervousness is born out of Adharma itself. Anybody who is straying away from Dharma, anybody who is wrongly trying to use up what belongs to somebody else or is trying to be unrighteous, there will be a sense of nervousness and uncertainty and fear which is hidden within that confidence which they try to portray outside. And that was, Duryodhana was a typical example of such behavior. And finally, we concluded with the verse, the 11th verse where Duryodhana says, that uh, let us all protect Bhishma. You know, till this point, he's saying that we, are, we have a greater army, we have the great Bhishma who is protecting us and all of that. But he finally concludes by saying, so let us all protect Bhishma. And of course, we spoke about why he specifically mentions this. So this is where we had stopped last week. So we'll continue with that. This was the 11th verse where we stopped. The next is going to be the 12th and the 13th verse together because I think that makes more sense. I'll play out the 
verses 12 and 13 and I'll read out the meaning after that and then we will discuss about what is significant about that verse. As you all know, the verses are being chanted or recited by Brother Sham, one of our alumnus and a volunteer of Radio Sai. So we listen to the verses 12 and 13 in the voice of Brother Sham. Tasya Sanjanayan Harsham Kuru Vridhaf Pitamaha Simhanadam Vinadyochai Shankham Dadmau Pratapavan Tata Shankhascha Bheryascha Parnavana Kagomukha Sahasaiva Bhyahan Yanta then Bhishma, the great, valiant grandsire of the Kuru dynasty, the grandfather of the fighters, now blew his conch shell very loudly and roared like a lion in order to cheer Duryodhana. Just immediately after that, conches and kettle drums and tabors and trumpets and cow horns blared forth. That sound became tumultuous. So that's the meaning of verses 12 and 13. As I just mentioned in the introduction, Duryodhana is trying to hide his nervousness, saying, oh, we have these great warriors and we have the greatest Bhishma who has the boon of dying only when he chooses to die. So no one is going to be able to defeat him. He is the disciple of the great Parashurama himself. And all of this confidence, but he says that let us protect Bhishma. And hearing this, all this while we saw that Duryodhana actually speaks to Dronacharya, not to Bhishma who is his commander-in-chief. He speaks to Dronacharya and then he speaks to the other warriors that let us protect Bhishma. Bhishma who hears this monologue of Duryodhana, he decides that it is time to tell Duryodhana that he doesn't need to be protected. That's why the verse goes, Tasya Sanjanayan Harsham, to increase the cheerfulness. That's the meaning of that phrase. Simhanadam Vinadya Uchaihi. He makes a roaring sound like that of a lion. Seeing that Duryodhana is not confident about him, Bhishma, in order to increase the cheerfulness of Duryodhana, he roars like a lion. He gives out a huge roar by which the entire battlefield is reverberating with. And then he goes on to say, Shankam Dadmahu Pratapavan. The valiant one blew his conch. And why does he do this? Tasya Sanjanayan Harsham to increase the cheerfulness of Duryodhana. And the moment Bhishma blows his conch, which is almost like the beginning of the war, it is a sign of preparedness, where the commander-in-chief of the army blows the conch and saying that we are ready, we are ready for the battle. And the moment Bhishma blows his conch, Shankascha Bhairyascha, conches and bugles, Panava Anaka, trumpets and kettle drums, Gomukhaha, cow horns, and all of these different, different, I think each one has their own uh, instruments to proclaim that they are prepared and they're great warriors, as we said. And each one of them start blowing their conches and bugles and the trumpets are blown, the kettle drums are beaten and the cow horns are blown. And at this point, he says, Shabdaha tumula abhavat, which means the sound was tumultuous and the earth itself was shaking. So that's the meaning of the verses 12 and 13. We'll go to the next one because there's, I think there's nothing more to say about in this particular verse. Tatashvetair hayair yukte Mahatisyandane sthitau Madhavapandavashchaiva then also Madhava and son of Pandu, seated in the magnificent chariot, yoked with white horses, blew divine conscious. So here for the first time, the two main characters of the Bhagavad Gita are spoken about in this verse. because They were mentioned before by Duryodhana Arjuna. He says that great warrior Arjuna is on the other side. But this is the first time this particular scene of Krishna as the charioteer 
Arjuna as the warrior traveling in the chariot, yoked with white horses. And it is the classroom where the Bhagavad Gita is going to be spoken by the Lord to his disciple, right? It's a symbol in itself. Whenever we see that chariot with white horses and Krishna and a despondent looking Arjuna, that is more or less the way by which we look at the Gita Upadesha scene itself. So this is the verse where that scene is explained. He says that with white horses yoked to it. And the chariot itself is described as Mahatis Syandana, which means a great chariot. Because this is not an ordinary chariot. And uh, this itself is, I think, fact of envy for everybody who is there. Because among all these hundreds of thousands of chariots which have assembled there, this chariot on which this great warrior Arjuna is seated is a very, very special one. And it is said that there are four horses yoked to this chariot. And of course, elsewhere in the Mahabharata and other Puranas, there are names for each one of these horses because they're very special. The chariot itself is very special because the chariot is not an ordinary one like the others. It is a gift from the God. And I'll not go into that entire story. There is this episode of the Khandavavana where uh, once Krishna takes Arjuna there and there is it's a long story where the Lord of Fire, Agni, is actually losing his luster and he has to consume the Khandavavana to regain his uh, energy. And he's not able to do that because the Khandavavana belongs to Takshaka and Takshaka is under the protection of Lord Indra who is the Lord of the Rains. So every time Agni tries to devour this Khandavavana, He's been put off, so he's not able to do that. And because of that, he's losing his luster. Krishna takes Arjuna to this particular place and Agni requests the help of Krishna and Arjuna. And at that time, Krishna tells Agni that if you want us to do this, you will have to bestow Arjuna with appropriate weapons and instruments. So at that point, Agni gives him this chariot of the four white horses, which he uses later in the battle. He also gives him the Gandiva bow, which is very, very famous and synonymous with Arjuna. We're going to come to that. It'll be mentioned a few times in the first chapter itself. And then gives him two quivers of infinite capacity to dispense arrows. So in many ways, this is probably the dream ensemble for any warrior. He's been gifted to Arjuna by the Lord of Fire, Agni himself. And... This is how he gets the chariot. I think it's a very, very important point. The reason why I'm telling this story is in many, many places, not only uh, during the war, but even during Mahabharata. And if we listen to Swami's discourses, Swami would narrate some of these stories where the grace of Lord Krishna comes in places where they could not have done without that at all. right? And this is a classic example of that, where Krishna knows that Arjuna will need some of these weapons and the chariot, which is so very powerful and very, very essential for him to win the battle. So it is he arranges this meeting in a sense with Agni and Arjuna and he instructs Agni to give him this particular collection of things which will be useful for Arjuna. And this is what divine grace does. And Swami would, as I said, mention many, many stories in the Mahabharata where Arjuna comes to the rescue of the Pandavas, right? And that is why when the choice between the Narayani Sena and Krishna is offered. Arjuna has no hesitation in choosing Krishna. One, of course, is the love and devotion they have for Krishna. But I think Krishna has also given ample evidence of how God's grace or divine grace can help you in ways inexplicable. And it's it one fills your life with sweetness and joy. It also makes you literally invincible in sorts. And I think that is one of the reasons why Duryodhana and the Kauravas were very, very scared because they knew that there was this Krishna who was there on the other side. In fact, going back to that episode where Arjuna chooses Krishna over the Narayani Sena, Duryodhana is not able to contain his joy because he feels that Arjuna has made such a stupid choice of choosing an unarmed Krishna over this mighty army. So he comes back from that meeting very, very happy. But the moment Shakuni hears that he has made this choice, Shakuni says, you've almost lost the battle. Because you have no idea how much mischief this one Krishna can do being on the other side. And that is what divine grace can do. And that is how divine grace plays in our lives, right? And uh, this aspect would be spoken of many, many times. In fact, the entire Bhagavad Gita itself is an expression of that divine grace, right? 
any number of people go through such dilemmas in life when you're supposed to carry out some particular task you're not sure whether you're supposed to do this you're not supposed to do this is it right for you to abandon that act is it right for you to go ahead and do it as your duty many of us face such dilemmas in life but here arjuna has this special blessing of receiving that advice from the lord himself and if we turn to lord krishna we feel a turn to the lord saying that you enlighten my understanding you enlighten my intellect that advice is available even for us and i think that is the endeavor in in us going through the bhagavad gita itself and that is the special added benefit that divine grace brings and i think that is why this story i thought i should mention where out of the blue krishna arranges this meeting the khandava vana is created in fact the khandava vana is the place where later after clearing out that forest the indraprastha or the capital city of the pandavas were built and it was that which caused jealousy in duryodhana and that was the one which was lost in the game of dice and in many ways the whole battle is being fought for that indraprastha which rightfully belongs to the pandavas right so that is one of the things comes out i wanted to make a mention through this particular verse so that is the 14th verse so let's go to the 15th verse in the first chapter panchajanyam rishikesho devadattan dhananjayaha paundram dadmau mahashankham Rishikesha blew the Panchajanya and Dhananjaya blew the Devadatta and Bhima, the doer of terrible deeds, blew the great conch Paundra. So this is the verse where this one and of course the next verse also the names of the various conches are given and it's important to probably speak about the conches of Krishna and Arjuna at least because as it's mentioned in the shloka itself it refers to their their conches alone as divyau shankhau which means theirs were not ordinary conches they were divine conches the story of the panchajanya of course is a legend in itself i'm sure most of you would be aware of it when krishna is under the tutelage of sage sandipani where he goes for his formal education after completing the education it is tradition that you offer guru dakshina or a form of an expression of your gratitude in the form of an offering to the guru right is made and at that point krishna and balrama go to sage sandipani and ask him what can we offer to you and uh, in fact even before asking that they ask him that we've been under you we've been living here for so many years we always found that there was a deep sense of pain and agony which was there always constantly in you and in the guru mata we want to know what is the cause of that and that's when sandipani says about his son who was lost was drowned in the ocean i think and uh, sandipani says that i keep thinking of him and whenever i see you all the more i get reminded of my son so krishna promises his guru said sandipani he says i will retrieve your son and come and that's how krishna and balrama go to the ocean and the deity or the lord of the ocean appears in front of them and says that it is not my mistake there is a, a demon which is supposed to be in the shape of a whale that is how the story goes his name is panchajana right panchajana is the name is that demon who swallows the son of sandipani so krishna goes there he fights this battle with this demon and retrieves the son and also finds this particular conch which is in the possession of this demon and that is why the name panchajanya so that is the conch which krishna uses thereafter and of course it is said that arjuna's conch name is devadatta which is again a gift from i think varuna varuna gives that special conch to arjuna the reason why all of these are mentioned you know the chariot was mentioned with white houses and as we go forward there's going to be a mention about the flag on arjuna's uh, chariot there's going to be a mention about the gandiva the bow which arjuna uses i think the reason why some of these things are mentioned is it is important especially in this chapter because it shows that arjuna has been preparing for this moment for a very very long time and it is with much interest because he is a warrior at the end of the day and an opportunity to show his talent and his might is something which every warrior passionately waits for 
So, so is the case with Arjuna. He's been waiting for this opportunity and he's been preparing for a very, very long time by gathering all of these things. And I think that is why it is specifically mentioned that all of these things, you know, there's the name of the conch, there's the name of the chariot and the bow and all of these things, right? And in this verse, of course, there is also a mention of Bhima. The last line of that speaks about Bhima. The conch that he blows is called Poundram, right? But Bhima is referred to through two adjectives here. He's not referred to merely as Bhima, but he's called Bhima Karma. The word Bhima itself means the terrible one. So Bhima Karma means the one who always takes up terrible tasks. And when I say terrible, it's not like uh, bad in that sense. But the most difficult task which is there available, that is what Bhima will always take up, right? That is what they always speak of Bhima as. And that's why when he goes for the training in weaponry to Dronacharya, he's drawn towards the maze because that seems to be the toughest to lift and wield because of its weight. So always Bhima is known to take up the most difficult task available in that particular time and space. And that's why he is given this name Bhima Karma. And there's a very interesting other adjective that is used is Vrikodhara. Vrikodhara, Vrika means a fox and Udhara means a stomach. And there are two ways of explaining this. And uh, one is he has an appetite of a fox. A fox cannot ever be satisfied. That's what they say, that it can eat endlessly. And most other animals, when they are satisfied, they stop eating. But the fox is not like that. As long as food is available, it keeps eating. And it has an endless appetite. So Bhima is described as one with enormous appetite. But also, a fox's stomach is always flat. In spite of all it's eating, the fox has a flat belly. So they say that this is also a description of Bhima's physique, where he's not only a huge and well-built warrior, but he's not a flabby warrior in that sense. He's not overly built or oversized or overweight in that sense. He's a very muscular person and he has a flat stomach. That's what is meant by this adjective called Vrikodara, which means he has the belly of a fox, an endless appetite, and also a flat stomach like that of a fox. So that is the meaning of this verse, which is the 15th one. Let's listen to the 16th verse. Ananta Vijayam Raja Kunti Putro Yudhishthiraha Nakula Sahadevascha Sugosha Mani Pushpakau King Yudhishthira, the son of Kunti, blew his conch shell, the Anantavijaya, and Nakula and Sahadeva blew Sughosha and Manipushpaka. That's the meaning of the 16th verse, as I said in this verse and the previous one, the names of the conches of Krishna, Arjuna, and the other Pandavas are mentioned. The interesting thing about this particular verse is Sanjaya, is, as we all know, Sanjaya is relating whatever is happening in the battlefield to Dhridrashtra. And what does he say? He says, Ananta Vijayam Raja Kunti Putro Yudhishtra. He refers to Yudhishtra as Raja, right? And clearly a sign that he does not lose this opportunity to remind Dhridrashtra that he is supposed to be the king. First of all, you are sitting on the throne and you're not letting him become the king. And now you are saying that after me, my son Duryodhana is the legal heir to the throne, right? So he does not lose this opportunity to remind Dhridrashtra that he is wrongly sitting on a throne which does not belong to him. And as I said, this is the nature of Sanjaya. He's very, very loyal to Dhridrashtra. Even though many others leave him, Sanjaya does not leave Dhridrashtra till the end, till the last moment. He's very loyal, but again, but still he's a very honest and very straightforward person. He does not hesitate or fear speaking the truth even to the king. And that is one of the things which he did. In fact, uh, even in the Bhishma Parva, the chapter where Bhagavad Gita appears, there is this huge section where Sanjaya describes the entire landscape of Bharatavarsha or the Indian subcontinent to Dhridrashtra. Dhridrashtra asks him about far-off lands and the people there. And he gives all of these descriptions. And at the end of it, Sanjaya again makes an attempt to tell Dhridrashtra to stop the war. And very abruptly he says, so, O king, why don't you speak to Duryodhana, your son, and ask him to go for peace instead of going for this great war, right? So Sanjaya is that sort of a person, very, very loyal, very faithful to his master, 
but does not hesitate to tell what is the right advice. So in this verse, as we said, the names of the conscious are mentioned. Yudhishthira is conscious, Ananta Vijaya, which means endless victory. Nakulas is called Sughosha, which means that which has a good sound. And Sahadevas was called Manipushpaka, which means the conch which is adorned with beautiful beads and gems. So that is the 16th verse. Next, we'll listen to the 17th and the 18th verse. I think that will make more sense because it's listening to the two verses together. So we'll listen to the 17th and 18th verse and then we'll discuss about it. ृथिवीपते सौभद्रश्च महाबाहु the great archer, the king of Kashi, the great fighter Shikhandi, Drishtadyumna, Virata and the unconquerable Satyaki, Drupada, the sons of Draupadi and the others, O king, such as the son of Shubhadra, greatly armed, all blew their respective conscious. So there's nothing much to explain in this. I think most of the characters we've already spoken about. So this is just a description of Sanjaya telling that after Bhishma first blew his conch, Krishna and Arjuna blew their conch, Yudhishthira and the other Pandavas blew their conch and now there are conches being blown by all the other warriors and all of these warriors are those who are fighting on behalf of the Pandavas. So he's specifically mentioning that the warriors on the Pandava side now blow their conch. And the next verse, he explains what is the effect of that when they blow their conch. We'll listen to that. That is the verse 19. Saghosho dhartarashtranam Hridayani vyadharayat Nabhascha prithivinchaiva the blowing of these different conch shells became uproarious and thus vibrating both in the sky and on the earth. It shattered the hearts of the sons of Dhridrashtra. So when Sanjaya speaks about Bhishma blowing the conch and, and roaring like a lion, he does not speak of what is the effect of that on the Pandava side. And uh, as we mentioned in the beginning itself, Sanjaya can not only see the events that are happening and listen to what is being spoken, but he can also sense the feelings of those who are speaking it. What is the nature? What is going on in their mind? I think this is an important thing to keep in mind as we progress in the first chapter itself, especially when Arjuna begins to speak. So he is able to see that when uh, the Kauravas start blowing their conches and beating the kettle drums, there is not much effect on the Pandavas, but when the Pandavas start blowing their conch, he says, Saghosho dhartarashtranam hridayani vyadarayat, which means with that sound, the sons of Dhridrashtra were shaken. He said the sound was so loud. Maybe one way of looking at it is, it is also a sign of the numbers that have come. Duryodhana did not expect so many people to appear for them. Maybe... And the other thing is the fear that I was speaking about when you're on the path of unrighteousness, when you are on the path of untruth, there is a fear that you can never get away with. There will always be the conscience pricking, which will always be telling you about an evil future that is the premonition of an evil future that is coming up to you, right? And so when this sound of the conscience being blown from the Pandava side comes, the sons of Zidrashtra are shaken by it, right? And then he says that the sound not only shakes the heart of the sons of the Drashtra, the Kauravas, he says, Nabhascha Prithivim Chaiva, which means even the earth and the sky shivered and reverberated with that sound. So that is the ninth verse in the Bhagavad Gita. I think uh, after this 
comes the real important part of the first chapter. So first chapter, 19 verses, is more like setting the stage. What is happening in the battlefield? What are the different scenes? Who spoke to whom? Who all have assembled? And the entire description has been given to Dhritarashtra by Sanjaya. It is from the next verse where the real scene, the we call the first chapter as Arjuna Vishada Yoga or Arjuna's grief, right? And that is the essence of the first chapter. I think that begins from the next verse. The next one I'm going to play for you is actually verse 20, 21 and 22 because though they are three different verses, they are more like one sentence broken up into three verses. So we'll listen to that. This is the verse 20 followed by 21 and 22. And then I'll read out the meaning and we'll discuss about it. Athavyavasthitan drishtva dhartarashtran kapidvajah pravritte shastra sampate dhanurudhyamya pandavah hrishikesham tadavakyam idamahamahipate Arjuna Uvacha Sena Yorubhayor Madhye Ratham Stapayamechuta Yavadetan Nirikshaham Yodhukamana Vasthitan Kairmaya Sahayodhavyam then, seeing the people of Dhritarashtra's side standing arrayed and the discharge of weapons about to begin, Arjuna, the son of Pandu, whose ensign or flag is Hanuman, took up his bow and said the following to Krishna, O Lord of the Earth. Arjuna said, In the middle between the two armies, place my chariot, O Krishna so that I may behold those who stand here desirous to fight and know with whom I must fight when the battle is about to commence. That's the meaning of verses 20, 21 and 22. The interesting thing about the verse 20 is the reference to a name which is given to Arjuna. He's called Kapidvaja. Sanjaya refers to him as Kapidvaja because Arjuna's chariot has a flag on top on which is Hanuman, right? The one on whose flag that flies on the mast of the chariot is Hanuman. And again, this also has a very interesting story, which is uh, a Chinnakatha which Swami would narrate. Probably I'll narrate that. Again, a sign of God's grace and divine grace when it comes into our life and how it helps us in ways and times when nothing else, our own efforts and our own energies fail us, right? Swami would narrate this story of how when Arjuna was on a pilgrimage towards the southern part of India, he reaches Rameshwaram. Rameshwaram is the place where Lord Rama, before he embarks on this journey to Lanka across the ocean, he performs worship to a linga and uh, propitiates Lord Shiva before he takes up this task. And that's why he installs this linga, which is referred to as Rameshwara. And Rameshwaram, of course, is a very renowned pilgrimage site even today. So Arjuna goes to Rameshwaram and he's at the threshold of the ocean where the bridge was built. And probably in the Dwaprayuga, the bridge could still be seen maybe. And he stands there and today we refer to that town as Danushkoti. It is believed that you still can see from the satellites a sign of a man-made bridge from the tip of Danushkoti town towards the current Sri Lanka. So Arjuna stands there and Arjuna is a great warrior and we know that he's capable of doing all kinds of magic things with his bow and arrow. So he looks at it and he says that, you know, Lord Rama was a great archer just like me. You know, probably that's how he, he puts it. He says, Rama was a great archer. Why did he have to take the help of monkeys to build a bridge? He could have built a bridge merely by using his bow and arrows. Right? That's what he's thinking and... Uh, he actually remarks this aloud and Lord Hanuman appears there and he asks Arjuna that, you know, how are you so sure that bridge which is built with arrows can be strong enough to hold the monkey army? 
millions and millions of monkeys are supposed to march past this bridge and reach Sri Lanka. How do you think that it would have been strong enough to hold the weight of so many monkeys? So then Arjuna says that I'm confident that it can be done, you know, and if I could do it, I'm sure Lord Rama being a great archer himself could have done it himself too. So Hanuman says that uh, a bridge that you can build in that way with arrows will not stand the weight of even one monkey. And Arjuna immediately takes that up as a challenge. And what does he do? He begins to build a bridge with his arrows, tightly knit together many, many arrows. And he says that since you've thrown this challenge to me, bring down this bridge if you can. And if you bring it down, I will give up my life. I will be, I'm ready to jump into the fire and end my life if I lose this challenge. So the bridge is built and Hanuman makes one small leap on the bridge and the entire bridge collapses. And at that moment, Arjuna is really, uh, his honor is hurt. He says that I've lost in the battle and he's about to build a fire into which he wants to jump. And Lord Krishna appears there at that moment and he looks at Arjuna and says, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to kill yourself? And Arjuna says that, you know, this was a challenge. I said that if I lose this challenge, I'm ready to end my life. So Krishna tells him that, see, any challenge or any uh, such duel should have a referee. Somebody should be there as a middleman who declares who's the winner. So you don't have a referee here. How can you say that you have lost the battle? So then Krishna says that let's have the battle again. Let's have this challenge replayed. And uh, this time Arjuna builds an even stronger bridge. Of course, he tries to make it more uh, durable. And Hanuman jumps on this bridge and he jumps up and down and he tries and he takes the form which he takes when he takes on the demons on the way when he is going towards Lanka. Huge form, multi-storied building form of Hanuman. He takes up that and he tries to jump on the bridge and it still doesn't break. And it is then that it strikes Hanuman that the bridge that they built, the Vanaras built, was built purely based on the name of Rama. Just by taking the name of Rama, the stones were able to float on the water and that is how the entire bridge was built. It was not purely an engineering marvel of the Vanaras, Nala and Nila. It was purely the grace of Rama that enabled them to build a bridge which could not only help them cross it, which also stood the test of time, right? And at that moment, he realizes that it was Rama's grace which made that bridge stand And it is the same Rama who has come as Krishna and it is his grace that is making this bridge stand too. So it is not that the Vanaras were great or it is not that Arjuna was great. It was Rama who was great and it is the same Rama who has come as Krishna and it is his word which is great again. So the moment Hanuman realizes this, he falls at Krishna's feet and he says, I'm sorry. So Krishna reprimands Hanuman saying that, you know, you for a moment forgot that it was all my grace that you were able to do and accomplish what way you could. And then he turns to Arjuna and he reprimands Arjuna too. He says that uh, humility is the true ornament for a great warrior and you should never forget that. You should never be, get carried away by your strengths. And he explains that in no way this bridge could have stood without my word. So never forget this. So at that moment... You know, Hanuman realizes that here is this great warrior who has won the favor of his Rama. So he offers his help. Hanuman says that when you're participating in any great war, I will come and I will be on the flag of the chariot that you're driving. And I will, in whatever way possible, help you in that battle. And that is the word that Hanuman gives. And that is his expression of gratitude to Rama who has come down as Krishna. And that is why in that Kurukshetra war when Arjuna comes to the battlefield with his grand chariot with white horses on the flag of that chariot is an insignia of uh, Lord Hanuman and Hanuman actually is present in the form of that flag. That is why the name which is given to Arjuna is Kapidwaja, the one on whose flag is Hanuman, right? So anyway, I think this is clear is that the part where Arjuna, this is clearly where the reflections of Arjuna will begin, right? So he tells Krishna, Senayor ubhayor madhye ratam me achyuta. So he says, oh Krishna, take my chariot and place it right in the middle of these two armies. Why does he say this? Why does he want to do that? He says, I want to see who has come to fight and all that. But he will explain that in the next verse, the 23rd verse. We'll listen to the 23rd verse and I'll give you the meaning for that too. 
ಯೋತ್ಸ್ಯಮೇಕ್ಷೇಹಂ ಯೇತೇತ್ರ let me see those who have come here to fight wishing to please the evil minded son of dhritarashtra that's the meaning of the 23rd verse so here arjuna is also doing what duryodhana was doing some time back right duryodhana came he surveyed the people who had assembled to fight against him he surveyed those who had come to fight for him in his own words who had come to die for him the same thing now arjuna wishes to do he tells krishna you take me to the middle of the battlefield he says i want to see the people who have assembled on both sides and in this particular verse he says i particularly want to see who were these great kings because in those days there was a lot of reverence given to kings a king was called naresha the lord of men right really worship worthy kings and such kings have assembled to fight on behalf of duryodhana even though they know that the dharma is clearly on the side of the pandavas so he says i want to see who are these great kings who are these great warriors who have come wishing to please the evil minded son of dhritarashtra he says durbuddhe duryodhana is having a contorted idea of what is right and wrong his buddhi is is clouded his buddhi is going astray to aid such a duryodhana there are people who have assembled in this battlefield and i'm surprised that they've come here i want to see who are those people who have come here so that's the meaning of the 23rd verse i think probably we'll have time for one or two more verses we'll go to the 24th verse we'll listen to it and i'll tell you the meaning after that ಸಂಜಯ ಉಚ ಮುಕ್ತೋಷೀಕೇಶೋ ಗುಡಾಕೇಶೇನ ಭಾರತ ಸೇನೋರುಭಯೋರ್ಮಧ್ಯೆ ಸ್ಥಾಪಯಿತ್ವಾರಥೋತ್ತಮ ಸಂಜಯ ಸೆಡ್ ಓ ಡಿಸೆಂಡೆಂಟ್ ಆಫ್ ಭಾರತ ಬೀಂಗ್ ದಸ್ ಅಡ್ರೆಸ್ಡ್ ಬೈ ಅರ್ಜುನ Lord Krishna drew up the fine chariot in the midst of the armies of both parties. So Arjuna says take me to the middle and here Sanjaya says that that's exactly what Krishna did he takes it to the middle and he places there you can quite understand uh, the inquisitiveness which must have filled the mind of Dhritarashtra he must be wondering what is happening here what is Arjuna doing what is he trying to do one part of it says that for a moment he actually thinks that did arjuna go for a peace truce did arjuna offer actually that was one thing which was in the mind of dhritarashtra till the end he never thought that the pandavas will come for battle he always thought that their goodness was their weakness and their goodness will stop them from doing anything like this so he was hoping even till the last minute that yudhishthira would come and say that i don't want to fight you can have the kingdom i will go back to the uh, forest with my brothers that is what he was expecting and probably he would have thought for a moment that arjuna is going to do that but of course as i said in the beginning this is a flashback in itself this is after the 10 days of battle so he knows that the battle has begun he knows that the pandavas have made inroads in the form of felling bhishma but probably you would have been wondering what is this what is arjuna trying to do why is he going to the middle of the battlefield and uh, is he trying to reach out to anybody there and is he trying to make a last proposal of peace what is he trying to do the interesting thing about this particular verse is arjuna and krishna are referred to as rishikesha and gudakesha rishikesha and gudakesha rishikesha is of course a name which has occurred a couple of times before already in the first chapter but the first time arjuna is being referred to as gudakesha as somebody very beautifully said among the many things the bhagavad gita is also a very good repository for good boy names if you're looking to name your child the newborn child because there are so many names of lord krishna and arjuna that are mentioned and as we can see there are so many names which have already been mentioned dhananjaya partha pandava and here it is gudakesha 
it's an interesting name rishikesha itself is a very interesting name and i thought we'll just spend a few minutes talking about that the word gudakesha split as gudaka plus isha gudaka means sloth it could even be described as sleep because one of the descriptions of arjuna is arjuna has conquered sleep he can wage a war for many many days or he can keep awake for many many days without falling asleep or without letting lethargy and dullness overcome his mind that was how much control he had over his body among the many talents that he had that's why he is referred to as gudakesha gudaka means sloth or sleep or any kind of dullness of the mind so he is gudakesha and krishna is referred to as hrishikesha now hrishika hrishika means the senses the word hrishi itself means pleasure and hrishika means that which is a source of pleasure and in the body it is said that the senses are the source of pleasure and hrishika esha is hrishikesha the reason why this is a very important appellation of the lord hrishikesha is in many ways that is what krishna is doing for arjuna there is this very beautiful analogy of the body being a chariot which is given in katopanishad with i think uh, i myself would have quoted it many many times on the other shows answering booth and shravanam mananam nididhyasanam where this very beautiful and very graphic analogy of the body being a chariot the senses being the horses the buddhi being the charioteer and the jivatma or the individual being the one who's traveling in the chariot and uh, the reins themselves being the manas aspect of the mind the working mind as we would call that so this is one thing which would often be given and it comes from as i said the katopanishad here the horses are meant to be the senses so the charioteer is one who is the master of the horses he not only guides the horses when he is driving the chariot but the charioteer also has the role of taking care of the horses right then that is one of the descriptions that is given in the mahabharat where krishna not only drives arjuna's chariot but he does all the duties of a charioteer he takes care of the horses the horses do get injured during the battle and the charioteer has to apply medicine for the horses he has to take them he has to give them the food and the water so krishna does all of this the symbolism of that is the lord is the one who has to be rightfully be made the master of the senses and swami would often say this there is a very beautiful verse in telugu which swami would chant i'm not able to recollect that verbatim where swami says what should be done with each one of the senses swami would say you know the eyes should be used to look at the form beautiful form of the lord the ears should be used to listen to the glories of the lord the tongue should be used to speak and sing the glories of the lord right swami would say that each one of these senses have to be used to glorify the lord why because the lord is rishikesha he is the master of the senses and you have to make him the master you should make him the one who guides the senses he should be given the role of the charioteer who sits there and guides the senses and that is why this particular appellation for lord krishna rishikesha is very very beautiful and in this particular verse it is juxtaposed with the name given to arjuna gudakesha and rishikesha and this is probably the pair which we all should endeavor to reach where as an individual we have to overcome dullness of the mind we should become ourselves gudakesha who do not let tamas or slothfulness overcome us and we make the lord the charioteer the lord the person who sits and marshals the senses that is the role that has to be given to the lord that is what we need to do and that is why these few verses that we have gone through is very very significant because it is not only the scene in the battlefield but it is the description of every individual who is the master of the chariot and who is the one who travels in the chariot who is the gudakesha and who is the rishikesha I think we might not have time for one more verse. I'll probably speak a little more about this particular concept before I end this particular as we are speaking about the chariot and the lord being the charioteer. As I had mentioned in the Katopanishad the charioteer is supposed to be the buddhi, right? The buddhi is the one who is supposed to be the charioteer. What is the significance of 
Lord Krishna taking up the role of the charioteer here. It is said that, you know, what is the role of the buddhi? The buddhi is supposed to discriminate, tell you what is right and what is wrong. So where does the buddhi draw this inspiration from? The buddhi, first of all, draws the inspiration from its conscience, which is the inner voice, which is always there. And it also draws from the knowledge which it gathers through the process of life. The kind of advice that it receives, the kind of probably the books that a person reads, all of these contribute to the discrimination of the buddhi, the ability to choose between right and wrong and what needs to be and what should not be done. But when we come to the Lord, when we come to a guru, a guru is not useful to our life unless and until we merge the guru's words with our own buddhi, right? The guru's words must itself become the buddhi. The buddhi should not merely make references to the guru's words or use the guru's words as and when it is suitable to it, but it should make the guru's words itself the buddhi. And this is explained in the Upanishads and the Vedas as the guru's words should become an internal pramana, a way by which we lead our lives. So that is one of the significances of Lord Krishna becoming the charioteer. When Lord Krishna becomes the charioteer, he takes up this role where he not only gives advice to the buddhi of Arjuna, but he becomes the buddhi itself. And that is how we need to approach the guru. When we say that you have to surrender to the guru, when we say that we have to, the word which we use is pranipata, where we offer ourselves to the guru, what we actually offer is this buddhi. We go to the master and say that I offer my discrimination to you, that whatever you say, I will take it as the basis for my discrimination. I will take it as the Shabda Pramana, as that based on which I will make all my decisions. Right? That is the significance of this imagery of Lord Krishna becoming the charioteer and the analogy which is given in the Katopanishad, where it says that the body is the chariot, the senses are the horse, the individual is the one who travels in the chariot, the reins are the mind, and the buddhi is the charioteer. Here, the Lord himself becomes the charioteer. The Rishikesha, the Lord of the senses, you should make him the Lord of your senses. And that is when you are ready to receive the Gita from the Lord and you are ready to be guided in every stage of your life by God. I think we'll conclude with that. We have completed 24 verses of the first chapter. The next week we will begin the real Vishada Yoga of Arjuna, the first chapter, where I think we have to look out for is the difference in attitude between Arjuna and Duryodhana. Duryodhana also surveyed the army, what was running in his mind. Now Arjuna is also going to survey the army. We will see what is running in his mind. But for that, you'll have to join me again next week for the next episode of the Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage. I thank you all for joining me this evening. I most humbly offer this effort at Swami's lotus feet. And I'll meet you all next week. Till then, happy listening.